I can't believe I fell. Oh my gosh. That's well, true. here's the problem. Nobody you had a picks fall. up. You had a fall. Like, nobody we have picks to up report that anything. To I'm the only person who picks up things. You put what you tripped over there and never put it away. Yeah, but it doesn't. That's called that doesn't, karma. That doesn't mean that somebody can't pick it up. But you put it there and then you tripped over what you left there. I didn't trip on it. I slid across it. Like, again, yoga mats, but wet you yoga put mats, it there. Service announcement wet, wet yoga mats are dangerous. I almost broke my wrist. I, I'm sure you'll be milking this for the next four days. Severely damaged my knee. I'm going to have to go to the doctor. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Oh, boy. But I made it through spin class. Because you know what? What Dylan says? What? No bad days. No bad days. No bad days. And he is right. No, he's not. There, I mean, you had a bad moment. You don't have a bad day. And you fell over what you left out was your bad moment. I don't know. I've had some bad days. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I've had some. I feel like you just open like we're going down a rabbit hole now. I don't. Well. So let's just let's just nix. Then you're fine. You fell. We should report it to the state. You're gonna be laid we're up. Not gonna report it to the state. <laughs> you're gonna be laid up for the next seven days. Yeah, I. It hurts. I'm in pain. But okay. I'm gonna. I'm. You're gonna. You're gonna battle. I'm gonna through. get through it. You're listening to Get Found Recovery, the podcast. Hey, everybody. It's Lindsay and Adam. We are here with Chris Doyle, who is the founder of Why Intervention. In addition to that, he is also the head substance use counselor and interventionist for the New York City Fire Department. With 13 years of sobriety, he has an incredible podcast called Why Intervention, and we're super excited to talk to him tonight. So, hey, Chris, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for the, uh, the warm introduction. How are you guys? We're good. And, you know, we've been on your podcast, I think, almost two years ago. And this was before even Get Found Recovery. We even thought about putting a mic in front of our face. I think, Mm -hmm. thank God for this pandemic in the sense that I needed something to do. So I started (laughs) podcasting, but uh, we got our first jolt of energy about being behind the mic and telling our story. And we thank you for letting us be a part of it. And we're happy to have you on. Of course. And that was a great episode. And I highly recommend everybody go and and listen to that because it was uh, that was that was the, the real deal. The real deal stuff that was going on, you know what I mean? It's just, just raw and entertaining, <laughs> you know. And I think too, like a light went off in my head when we were talking about all this and why intervention. And I remember we got off with you, and I was like, "That was awesome." And I was kind of sitting by myself, and I'm like, "Why didn't you guys do an intervention for me? Like, why did that never come to light? Why have we never said, you know, one of somebody who might have a problem that comes to us? How come we've never said to them, maybe it's time for an intervention? So, you know, we're excited to to talk to you. Let's get to your story because you are in recovery, 13 years. Take us back to the process of, of you finding recovery. I grew up in a alcoholic home. Fortunately for me, both of my parents were already in recovery. And so because it was alcoholism, but they were, you know, recovering from it, I was exposed to uh, recovery programs and, and, and like people that were in recovery and things like that early. And so really, you know, like what I get into often is how my perspective has shifted as to what happened. You know, like I would say that I was semi-suicidal. I didn't want to wake up in the morning. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was drinking like... Uh, I would go out with two pollen, pollen spring bottles of vodka and Been I was there. only, you know, 17 years old going yeah. out and, and, and doing that and, and masking it like it was water with other kids that were my age, you know, like, which is already kind of wild in the sense that I was hiding it from them, you know, right. as if they would have cared, but they would have in the sense of like, we don't want to get into whatever might happen knowing what you're drinking, you know, like how you are. And so it was certainly something that, I was starting to get into some trouble and I got arrested for the first time, et cetera, et cetera. And then I wound up getting help. And, and then I would go into like all the great things about recovery that happened after that. But really, and this is a, a long time coming where the hindsight goes back, like real 2020 hindsight mm-hmm. is my mother helped to get me sober. And it was a key point 
that I had always, I just never really considered as being a key element to the story. And that was kind of like the missing piece of the puzzle for me many, many, many years later when now being in the addiction treatment field, my personal experience, my professional experience, and starting to deal with people who were resistant to getting help and things like that, and, and realizing that I need to get through to them somehow in order to convince them to get help. And I don't know how to do that. Right. And right. That's kind of what led me down the road of intervention. But then eventually it was like, oh my God, this is what my mom did. So your mother was already in recovery when you kind of came to the apex of, of your addiction, right? Yes. Yeah. She was sober for probably over 20, maybe 25 years. And was it you saying, mom, I have a problem or was it her knowing you had a problem? So it was her kind of, now I don't know this at the time, of course, again, right. this is super duper hindsight, 15 years later, looking back yeah. at the story right. and speaking yeah. with her, you know, and realizing it after I had been trained in intervention to be, go back in time and be like, you know, when you, there's a lot, a lot of details that are fun, but I <laughs> did not ask her for help is the bottom line, right? She saw me walk in the door, looking sad, eyes low, Sunday morning, 11 o'clock in the morning, and didn't do what a mother of her 17-year-old son could have done, which is you know lose her mind. And she just said, would you like to go to a meeting with me? And because I had had such a rough night and really a rough stretch, I was in that low point and in that kind of moment of clarity arena yeah. where it's like, okay, like I, it was like, it was like, she just blew me over. Like, like she was just like knocking over a, like a domino, like no, no big deal. You just know, no resistance just at all. Gave it. It was just like stars aligned it's, in that moment. I say that about, I say that about you yeah. going to the hospital. I'm telling you, there was that moment where that day that Adam came home and I was like, oh my God, he's going to die. And I said, you need to go to the hospital. And he just said, okay. But for you to do that at 17 years old, like I know what I would say to my parents. And when it's your time for recovery, I guess it's your time for recovery. But at 17 years old, when your mom's like, you want to go to a meeting for you mm-hmm. to know that you have a problem. I mean, obviously you progress pretty fast, right? Because you talking about Poland Springs, uh, vodka being in that, I did the exact same thing, right? But, mm-hmm. but 15 years later when I was in my thirties. So I guess we all get to that stage, but for you at 17 years old to kind of succumb and give up and know that you needed help. I mean, good for you. Well, it's all context specific. And so that's the part where it's kind of like my mother had been laying the groundwork for a while. My mother had been setting me up for a moment like that. That's the key. So it's, you know, the way that I explain it is, is that I think that, you know, we're, people in active addiction, we're having moments of clarity all the time. We're always coming to probably on a weekly basis, if not sooner, where we're saying to ourselves, like, we can't do this anymore. I can't live like this. Like, I really have to do something. There's always some level of motivation. It's just that it's, it's rarely paired with the opportunity to get sober. You're so right. Because when people come to us with those issues, when they're having problems with people in addiction and they admit to needing help, I'm like, there's your window. There's your opportunity. There's their inner self, their ego. Somehow their inner self is beating up their ego. And this is your chance to get in. And, but I didn't think it in that sense that like, you're right. There were times when I was in active addiction where I was thinking, what am I doing with my life? But that window shuts so fast. Right. And you go back to addiction. It's crazy. And so if families are, are, armed with the, the, the way to kind of perceive those signs, but then also how to have the, the conversation in, in the right way. And by the right way, I mean specific to the individual. Contextually, what my mother said to me was going to work. If she would have said something like, do you think you have a problem with alcohol? That would have started a fight. So she said the right words at the right time to get me as an individual to agree to get help. Which was come with me, come with me. Would you like to go to, would you like to go with me to a meeting? 
And because it was something that she had already kind of laid the groundwork with. I mean, I made my first meeting when I was in a baby carriage, right? Like I'd been right. going yeah. for a long time. But then by the time I was a teenager, of course, I, I didn't do that anymore. But she would always bring me in for anniversaries. Like, so I would show up at these different things. And then, so a seed had likely been planted in one of these things. Well, this is a big anniversary. It would be really important for me. And I'm, I'm, and I'm having uh, this woman who was a confirmation sponsor for me at the time, right? So my seventh grade confirmation sponsor was speaking for her at this anniversary. So she not only was like, I want you to come to the anniversary, but also Gloria is speaking for me. And so that's like, oh, well, I can't say no to this one. <laughs> you know, and so right. it gets me in the room and it gets me exposed, but it's not like, will you come with me? It's in, it's under the guise of, you're coming from my anniversary, but she knows what she's doing. Yeah, trick. And, and it's a big like, trick. Yeah, but these <laughs> elements, these things are not thing. This isn't like rocket science. It's just that families don't know these little tips right. and tricks on how to do these things to get us set up for when that Saturday or Sunday morning is going to hit us and that they're going to not only know the right thing to say, but then the right thing to do. Right, What's right. Follow up. What's the next step? Because if you're expecting that you're going to say you should really do something about this and then I'm going to say, OK, you know, you're right. And then I'm going to like start getting on the phone and making phone calls and finding a treatment facility for myself as if I know any of that. Right. Right. Crazy. Right. I'm and going I to be drunk later today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not you have a problem. Yeah, I do have a problem. Let's have lunch and then we'll figure it out later. It is. It's you right have now. to. Yeah, you have to hit it where it comes. What, what I find interesting is that your mother was already in recovery and your father, I'm assuming, mm -hmm. as, as well was in yes. recovery. Yep. So, so what got you into addiction? If ever there was a poster boy for you should have known better, it would have been me. And so I just think that that's a, a classic example of that addiction knows no demographic. It knows no boundaries. It's not going to like separate. Like what happens to me was I got drunk the first time and that's it. Mm -hmm. I got drunk the first time and the effect on me was different than the other 90% of the kids that I hung out with. And that's just kind of across the board, what the numbers look like statistically that Roughly 10% of us are going to have a reaction with alcohol that's going to put us in the addicted to alcohol category. And my initial experience with it, it's what got me hooked. And that's it. Like I was, I was definitely one of those people who kind of crossed that invisible line right from the start. But what I can say is that by my neighborhood standards, I started late. I was 15. Wow. 15 is still really young. Yeah. Yeah. And it really is almost like a teenager pandemic, if you will, or epidemic. Like you think about when people get addicted, it's, it's in their teenage years. It's, it's not so much about us getting to the place where we drink or use drugs to get there right. over years and years and years. It's like we become addicts from the start. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. But, but the consequences and the things don't show up because we look like everybody else that's being risky and impulsive and crazy, but they will grow out of it or yeah. it's just a bad habit for them. And maybe they'll, they'll get, have some run-ins with some various different things, but tracking it over time, you have those, those 10% out of the crew that they never just grow out of it. It's not a phase. It's not a habit. It is an addiction and they are gripped by it, which means that they are not going to stop unless something stops them. Right. And that can be physical. It could be consequential. It could be legal. It could be any of those sorts of things, or it can be family. And only one of those is like pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So talk us through, right? So now you're in recovery. How does why intervention get started? So I was in recovery for probably a good eight years, just peer-based helping people that was where I was at. And then as a firefighter, I started to help with first responders specifically in a peer counselor sort of role where I was attempting to help them with, you know, treatment, accessing treatment, getting to treatment, and then would do some one-on-one -on -one, like counseling and started leading some groups. And then I went to school to become a, a counselor and, and was, was doing all of that. But I kind of became the go-to guy to have the kinds of conversations with someone who was resistant, obstinate, hard-headed, heels dug in, not interested. 
I don't have a problem. I don't need to be here. I don't even know why I'm here. I'm here <laughs> right. because either on a personal note, they're saying stress or anxiety or they're depressed or they have some uh, any other sort of anything other than I am an alcoholic or have a substance right. use problem or I got addicted to pain pills or anything like that. Um, and oftentimes they would be there in a in a voluntold sort of sense. Someone yeah with a little bit of leverage said, we want you to go down and speak to this guy. So this guy would be me. Right. And now mm -hmm. I'm speaking with them. And of course, I'm able to deduce, you know, inside five minutes, like this guy has an alcohol problem and he's not aware of that. He does not see it as a problem. This is normal for him. And so now I'm working with him. Clearly, I know like this guy needs some help, but given the kind of circumstances I'm not in a position beyond this single session. If I don't get them right now, I, I may lose them. Right. And was that the majority of what you were seeing when you started out, especially in the field, right, of, of firefighters, where I feel like, you know, there's this, I call it a stereotype, right? Where you're supposed to be tough and, well, you know, you nobody- run in, You run well, into fires. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, who runs not, into fires? I'm not saying they're not no, tough. I, I I'm know, saying, I'm just saying they're tough. They're tough. They're tough, but when it comes to- Everyone's us, running out of fires. These people are running <laughs> into fires. Mm -hmm. Right, so there's something off they, already. There this, yeah, there's something off. There's something off already. <laughs> But they don't want to talk about a addiction, uh, stigma. They don't want that associated with them. So I, I have to imagine when these guys and, and, and women, I assume, too, come into your office, it's like, I'm here because, like you said, I was voluntold. I'm good. I'm it's gone. It's been a bad month. I'm, I'm out, right? I'm stressed, right. you know, yeah. all this stuff. And then they're, they're gone. I think that, you know, the fire first responder profession in general is kind of like puts it into the extremes, especially like firefighting. It's a, um, you know, out, like drinking is not just enabled, it's encouraged, you know, right. like it's, it's, it's part of the culture. I have my own kind of like personal viewpoints as to like, like what role stigma plays really when you're dealing with someone who is clueless to their own condition. Mm -hmm. Right. That I'm like, of course, it plays a part if you're starting to think about the labels and things like that and what people would call me. And, you know, like people would have a tough time labeling themselves that various things. And so I, I get that. But really, it's kind of like a process of like discovering like, oh, I have this thing and not really recognizing it. And so it wasn't something that like just to answer your question, it it was probably over 50% of the time that someone can be honest enough to say like, yeah, you know, like I drink, you know, I drink like everybody else, like, a, you know, like, like that could be honest and kind of connect, but we all drink. And it's kind of like right. this old joke of like, well, geez, you know, guys, I just had my temperature taken. I got a, I got a 104 degree fever. And then all the, oh yeah, us too. No big deal. Don't worry about it. Right. Right. It's well, if so, if everybody is at the 104 degree fever, it's normal. Right. And so there are some guys that you can speak with who can like say, yeah, this is what this is what I do. And they're like open to kind of talking about it. And then you can say like, well, you know, it's not really normal to have 10 beers at a thing, you know, just because it happens to be Wednesday and you're at a function and everybody else is doing it. That's a lot, especially when now we start to take a look at some of the consequences that are happening in your life and that you haven't connected that alcohol is playing a role in some of these different things, right. you know, and just your physical, your mental, your, 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 your spiritual state, like just how you're doing. You're not doing so great. So they can be open to that. But the other side of the, the so better than 50% is like just, just all resistance. Right. Mm. And so it took a different skill set. And it took a skill set that in my first year of doing it, I didn't quite have. And so that's when I discovered intervention, because it was just like, I, I was just so frustrated with the idea of I have this guy here with me right now. And knowing what we know about alcoholism and addiction, if I let this guy go now, and he doesn't connect that this is a problem for him, and he just goes, he leaves here and just continues to do this, it doesn't end well for us. Right. Right. You're probably not getting him back for another meeting. No, no. Yeah. Cause he's not going to leave and say, I had a great meeting today with a counselor and talking to his family and being right. like, right. you know, he thinks I have a problem. <laughs> you know, that's not happening. <laughs> that's not how yeah. it happens. No that's way. No way. It, no one is going to know why he was there if they know he was there at all. Well, that's what I was going to say. I was like half of the time, nobody even knows they were there. I, I got to assume. Yeah. And if it was a voluntold situation, it's, it's going back to whoever voluntold them and saying, I did what you told me. Right. Right. 
Right. So I satisfied that. I satisfied what you wanted me to do and I'm all good now. And they could even say, they even told me I'm all good. Right. I want to get into this because I have so many questions. Talk to us about the process of an intervention, because I have, I have all these thoughts in my head. And as a family member, I look at an intervention as the loved ones coming to you to say, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. there's a problem. I don't know where to turn. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. They won't listen yep. to me. They but hate we're mad me. At you. And I am enemy number one, right? As that loved yeah. one. So yep. th- I'm assuming that it's the family that comes to you to yes. start this process and you are a buffer. Or a mediator and a go-between. The reason why I started Why Intervention is because of the lack of that being an idea for families that that's something that they're actually going to do. And from a professional standpoint, it's not something that professionals would even recommend. It's almost as though intervention has its own version of bias and stigma attached to it. Everybody has their own ideas and kind of a lot of negative associations with what they presume interventions are. In my head, right, I remember back in the day, right, with Mm. my mom, Mm. I remember at one point we sat her down and it was myself, my sister and my dad. And we sat her down and like, I wrote a letter. Mm -hmm. I did all the things and I read the letter and she was just pissed, like pissed. And now knowing you and knowing what you do, right, I'm like, oh, like, that would have been the perfect opportunity to have someone come in who could be that mediator to do that. Because another piece that I always think about is, let's say conversation goes fantastic. And the person says, you know what, you're right, I do need help. Okay, well, you need those steps in place of what's next. (laughs) Because that's half of the battle, right? That's what we say to people all the time. Like, if you're going to approach this, you need your, your ducks in a row, because if they say yes, what's next? I think that the, the image most people have in their mind, right, is what they would see in popular culture if they see it on TV or they see it in a movie or something like that. But the outcome is always dramatized. The outcome is what's ridiculous. It's Chrissy and Sopranos and him getting you know, yeah. beat up at the end of the intervention. It's a guided, loving conversation that the family is going to have with their loved one sharing with them how much they love and care about them and how their substance use is affecting them. Not the individual is affecting me as a family member, right? So a lot of the like I statements and just what you've observed, and it's kind of just putting it in clear terms so that everybody in the family or anybody that you have involved in the intervention is now sharing the same story. They're on the same page. There isn't any more triangulation, compartmentalizing, manipulating. This puts your addicted loved one in this position where it's like the gig is up. And it's, it's like, okay, am I going to, am I going to put up a fight here or am I going to take the opportunity to get help? Now, how that gets presented, how that gets done, really, it, it comes down to like, you know, contextually, the level of guidance, the comfort level of all of the participants you know, there's, there's a lot of pre-intervention work before you have that conversation to make sure that you're going to be mitigating as much of those kinds of reactions from your loved one as possible. But even if your loved one kind of responds it in an angry or like, you know, uh, getting pissed off kind of way, you would know how to navigate that. Right. You would have been coached for how to deal with that particular circumstance because we would have already talked about it. We just said, what do you think is likely to happen after we read our letters with your mother? And she's going to fly off the handle. Like, but that's not everybody's mom. There could be other emotional reactions. She's going to play the martyr. She's going to be a victim. She's going to blame you. She's going right. to say it was Joey's fault. She's going to go into whatever she's going to go into. And so it's like, all right, so how are we going to address that? Who is going to be the person that's going to address that? And if you, you have a plan going in, there's an air to it. There's an energy. It really is like a magical thing to witness because you you can just see the wheels turning in this in your loved one. You're basically manufacturing that moment of clarity. You're pulling them to the moment of clarity and then you're joining it with the opportunity for recovery. And better than 90% of the time, the person says yes, right then and there. 
Oh God, I it's, wish I did this yeah, and with it's, you. And it's crazy. The way you're describing it is like a playbook, right? And everyone has their own parts. It's almost like a firefighter, right? When you go to a fire, this exactly, building yeah. or this house is on fire. Well, mm-hmm. this guy's got to set up the hose and this guy's got to turn this up. This guy's running the crane. There's a chief. What's the other guy? We watch a lot of Chicago fire. What's the battalion it? chief. Yeah, the battalion chief. And, you know, everyone mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. a role to play. And at the end of it, you put out the fire. And sometimes there's a fire that breaks out in the back. So you need your team from the back to kind of support that. And it's just, mm-hmm. it is crazy that, you know, I think a lot of people think that intervention is we're going there to yell. We're going to go there and just yell at this person and belittle mm-hmm. them until they say, okay, fine, I'll get help. But it really comes from love. Right. Yes. Well, and I think all of that thought process of anger is love, right? But people just don't know what to do with that anymore sure. because sure. they're so just in despair, right? Mm-hmm. Because their loved one doesn't want any help. Me being a massive planner, this sounds like everything I needed in my life. I'm not even joking because if I could have, if Chris, you could have been my guy, right? And I'm coming to you and I say, okay, here's everyone. Here's his mom, his dad, his brothers, my dad, my sister, everyone like get organized, get everyone, get on the same page. This would have saved me. I, I, the amount of stress and the amount of anger and hardship and tears and all of the things right because everyone mm-hmm. was on different pages yeah and because well, so, i was telling because i as the addict was telling everyone a different version right. of my story so i just right. see it as like oh my gosh everyone getting aligned for one common goal of getting you help and then you accepting that help it would have saved taken- us a large hospital <laughs> 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 It would have saved me some like less gray hair and all of the things, but my goodness. Okay. So when you have this all together and you have a family and this family has done all of the work, the pre-work, right. Mm -hmm, And, mm -hmm. and you sit down, is it that, is it the image I have in my head as this person comes in and everyone's sitting there and you're the stranger in the house and you say, hi, everyone. I'm Chris. Or you say hi to this person. Hi, I'm so, Chris. And then- Oh, you're there. You're there. Yeah, I can be there. Oh. Yeah. 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 That's so awesome. I would want him there because you, you're the spouse and the family is always like enemies, right? Mm-hmm. So again, contextually, the term that they use today, right, in the diagnostic statistic manual is uh, substance use disorder, right? So you have substance use disorder, you have mild, moderate, severe. So if I would want to have an appropriate response for contextually where your loved one is at, right? So whether I'm in the room or not is going to be contingent on like what the family response needs to be to what's going on in this person's life, right? Just how delusional and resistant and defiant are they, right? If it's not at the extreme, then I can coach a family conversation, one of the things that came out of the pandemic, which is, which is a blessing, and is that we were able to do Zoom interventions. Mm, wow. We were able to just be there, you know, like as a guide, like live streaming into the room. But if, a, if an intervention goes perfect, as far as like I'm con- concerned in the way that I was trained, I don't say a word. I'm not going to say a but single you already thing. Did, you already did your work. I'm on the sidelines. You guys are running the place. You're on the court doing it. You know what I mean? Like you're in the room, you're sitting down, you're well-prepared, you're well-coached and, and you know, all of your uh, tactics, you know, how to deal with objections, you know, what comes next, you know, what the, you just know how to handle everything that they're saying, everything that's coming at you. And, and at, like a good coach on the sidelines, like occasionally I might have to call a timeout. And so I'll, I will literally just go, okay, timeout. And, and I'll just say something to the team. I'm there for the family, right? And right. it's kind of like the byproduct of this is your addicted loved one says, okay. We're taking the focus off of like having this hardcore intention, even though it is our intention to get this person into treatment. But the real intention is, is that the family is going to come together here in a supportive, loving way. And they're going to, everybody's going to get clear on what we, what we are going to stop doing because we now know and we recognize what's been going on here. And we love you too much to watch you kill yourself. And so here are the changes that we're going to make if you don't take us up on our opportunity to get help today. 
how many times do you have to break a bad habit of a loved one who is, um, what do, what do you call them? What do you call somebody who just keeps helping out? An addict? Enabler. Yeah, I it, hate that word. Yeah. It's a bad, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a bad word, does. but how do you break their habits of being mm-hmm. addicted to the addicted? Yeah. yeah. It's so it's context specific, but you would, everybody's going to have their pattern. It's not going to be hard to find. You're going to know like the two or three things that they're doing. And then just like any recovery journey, you're going to like get to the heart of why they're doing that. And then you're going to give them something else to do. That's going to satisfy what's truly going on within them as to why it is that they're doing that. Right. There's Mm -hmm. going to be some fear. There's going to be, obviously it's a true spirit of helpfulness. They care about this person more than anything else. Right. And that's also just one of the strongest reasons why intervention, it's like it involves the family in a way. There isn't anybody that loves and cares about this person more than you. So no one is in a better position to do this, but you have been led to believe that there's nothing you can do to help. That's like the big lie that everyone gets to because of doing those sorts of things. You know, what I, I have like a, a free download at my website. It's like eight mistakes you make when you have someone you love that has an addiction. And I call it the stop dreaming framework. And so if you're in a position where you're denying, rationalizing, enabling, arguing, minimizing, investigating, negotiating, or guessing, meaning guessing like what to do, what do I do? What do I do now? Is this the right thing to do? What, you know, and you're doing any of those sorts of things, it's like the first step is let's identify what you're doing in those categories. Right. What are the specific things that you're doing in those categories? And then we're going to stop doing them. We're going to get to the heart of why you're doing it. And then we're going to replace that with something that's actually going to unable addiction. We're talking with Chris Doyle from Why Intervention. You know, I do a lot of times compare addiction to being possessed. And Mm. it does sound like in a lot of ways that intervention, and I'm not comparing the two in a scientific manner, but it's almost like an exorcism, right? You're trying to pull this addiction out just long enough so you can talk to that loved one and just say, Hey, we're all here for you. Now let's get help. You talked about that. One of, you know, your best interventions are when you don't talk at all. Is there anything that people have thrown you an addict that has thrown at the family member that you've been like, Oh, that's an, that's a new one. I don't How do I, how do I combat that? Or are we tell me about that? Or all we, are we all the same? And we all have the same excuses in different, different, you know, times and ways. Yeah. Occasionally. Yeah. You're going to have, you're going to have something that almost makes you want to applaud from the sidelines (laughs) where you're just like, wow, that is a real gem, you know? Um, but nothing that throws anybody because you're part of the, the coaching for addiction and any of your listeners that might benefit from this kind of this concept is, you know, when you're in that kind of mode where you're trying to help your loved one with an addiction, you, you're identifying that the place that they're coming from is that addicted mindset when they're in this sort of um, protective survival mode almost where they are feeling like they are under threat. Mm-hmm. And so you're recognizing that whatever they're lobbing at you now is crazy. It's everything that they got in or because they're terrified right. of letting go of alcohol or drugs. They don't, they don't know what life looks like on the other. It's, it's pure terror, if, especially if they have no frame of reference. Right. I mean, in my personal story, I had a frame of reference. I had tons of meetings under my belt before I ever drank. <laughs> right. and, and it still was like, what am, how am I? Once I got into drinking... It was like, that's my solution for life. So how I'm, how I'm going to move forward without drinking, it, it wouldn't have been a thought that's going to occur to me naturally on my own. And if anybody would have threatened that or interfered, it is a fight. It is now I'm in survival mode. I need this. And so anything that's going to come as a family member now, if you can kind of recognize that this is going to be ridiculous, it's going to be crazy. And if you could just look at it like that and you just sidestep, you just like, just almost like I physically sway, you yeah. physically sway, like where it's just like, Neo, I'm just like Neo, just dodging I'm stepping bullets. out of the way of that. Yeah. It's like, uh, I hear what you're saying. Maybe you're right about that, but that's not what we're talking about today. Wow. What we're talking about is your addiction. That's why we're here. That's why we came together and we want to help you. And, and it's like, yeah, but yeah, my DWI had nothing to do with my drinking. It's like, hello. <laughs> 
No, how could it? We're just gonna sidestep it. Side we're gonna sidestep that. We're not gonna get into how ridiculous that sounds. We're just gonna sidestep that one. Right. So you're and not like, gonna engage. You. You're not gonna engage them on. Well, you, of course your DW. Uh, you know, you're DWI got into there. that. You were yeah. you blew four times over the legal limit, and you were at the bar. Yeah, because then that just brings them to where you wanna, where they wanna go. And and so and now you're getting into a conversation where you're trying to rationalize with someone who's irrational. Right. So that's one of the eight things. So getting into this rationalization, trying to reason with this person, it's not going to get you anywhere. Because, uh, but of course, it's like, well, what is the, what's the intention behind that? That if I reason with him enough, if I can just get him to see, if he could just see it, if he understands, why doesn't he get it? If he gets it, then he'll stop. He will not. <laughs> right. Well, and the thing is, you know, when, we are attacked and, and I put myself back in an addict's shoes and it's almost like it's bubbling up. I'm getting mad at you guys for, <laughs> for even trying to do this intervention. But um, no, like mm -hmm. Lindsay would talk to me in the kitchen when I was in active addiction and she would be crying and I'd be like, I'm not hurting anybody, Linz. I'm not hurting anybody. And here's yeah. my wife of one year, two years, you know, when she really found out that I had the problem crying to me and me telling her that I don't, I'm not hurting anybody. It's like, how could I even say that is just like, mm -hmm. those are the words that came out of my mouth. And you somehow. believe them. I believe them. Yes. I believe and that, them. And then That's I, so good. And I believed that if I just yelled enough and mm -hmm. cried enough that he would stop. Right. So right. that was where I was as that loved one. I think just the important piece of all of this, right, is this is a whole family concept. Right. And that is a big piece of what Get Found Recovery is as well, is looking at a loved one and looking at the addiction as a whole family journey. Right. Because right. the person who's in active addiction has just as much work to do as the loved one trying to get them help. Mm -hmm. Because if you're both not cohesive and you're both not aligned, nothing good is coming out of this. And it's, it's a recovery journey for everybody. And, but see, so what another intention of, of why intervention is that there's no reason why the family can't get started first. Yes, uh, totally. Like way, way, almost way before, right? Because yeah, you need yeah. to get, you need to find your moment. Yeah. Right. And like, so your ideally, like your mother did for you. Exactly. Ideally, everyone would be armed with the skills that my mother already had because of her experience. It's not like it was out. It's outside of like understanding it. It's just that you have to set aside the possibility that your kid could be an alcoholic or an addict. It's recognizing that this can get anyone regardless of anything. It has nothing to do. See, this was one of the major, major advantages that my mother had right out the gate was that she never blamed herself because I was an alcoholic. There was never any sort of feeling as though she was responsible for the fact that I had the illness called alcoholism. Right. She got that from personal experience. Mm. She knows the ins and outs of that. So many family members don't. So if you have a mom or a dad who can have a glass of wine at dinner and then their kid gets hooked on pain pills and two years later is using heroin, it's like, it, that's like such a crazy foreign concept. It's like, what in the world? And it's all becomes personalized. It all becomes like internalized that what did we do wrong? What could we have done different? Should we have done something differently? What do we do now? Is there anything we can do? All of those questions. And, and you just think of the intensity and the urgency of it all. Right. And if right. they seek help, someone's going to get on the other end of the phone and say, oh, well, there's nothing you can do to help an addict. Isn't that the worst? So I, that's I, what needs to be solved. Yes, I, I totally agree with you. I, I cannot stand the there's nothing you can do kind of thing. I, I, I can't stand that. But is, there, but is there only so much you can do? Well, if so much that you can do is put into a lot of things that aren't going to help right. inadvertently or, or even sometimes overtly, it's going to be enabling the addiction to continue. It's allowing the addiction to thrive. And it's unwittingly most of the time and well-intentioned in trying to help and do things that are going to get this to stop, you know? And it's just like, man, if you just, if you just knew what my mom knew, it's got, it, it would put you like better than 90% ahead of anybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. Than doing this on your own. Yeah. Right. You know, just that alone 
would be like, oh, just think about just all the guilt and blame and pressure and stress that you feel that like you had like this person. You would never take personal responsibility because your 16-year-old had cancer. You would just get down to the business of doing whatever it is that we need to do. But the thing about cancer is there's like support systems and like a known strategy for what we're going to do based on what kind of cancer we have. With addiction, it's like, oh my God, don't tell anyone. We got to keep it quiet and we have no idea what to do. Right. And we're panicked and we don't want to talk to anybody. And yeah. so we're now we're going to internalize everything. And take it personally. Yes. So what, what you said, the yelling and the arguing and the crying, it's like the end result of that is, is that he doesn't care about me. If he, if he loved me, he'd stop. If he loved me, he changed, like he would do something about this. And what the disconnect is, is that he is not anywhere near thinking about that. He is both loving you and also has alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And his love for you and the kids has nothing to do with his inability to stop drinking on his own. And that's sometimes what I think addiction is. Like addiction isn't me, it's inside of me, but I'm still, I'm still here. It doesn't help when people are yelling at an addict. I've never seen an instant where an addict gets yelled at and finds and, and finds it works. recovery. Right. No, you, you, you're not going to yell someone sober. So during these interventions, when the person in active addiction says, yes, I'm done, you know, I do need help. You have already, you and the family have already laid that groundwork of what is next, right? right? Because I feel like that's a big, I know we hit on this a little bit before, but I feel like that's a big piece that is missing a lot of times. Because Adam will say to me all the time, there's moments where someone will say, I need help. And you have a very small window yeah. to get there. So talk about that a, a bit, if you could, just so so loved ones understand yeah. that it's not just saying how you feel and talking to someone about getting help. It's the whole plethora of start to finish of getting right. them treatment. Right. And, and that goes to, again, like kind of the cancer example of like, once you identify that this is cancer, it's like, okay, what's the highest and best level of care we can get mm-hmm. to deal with this, right? And unfortunately, this is where the concept of like, where you hear people say like, oh, treatment doesn't work. It's not necessarily that treatment doesn't work, although there are a lot of things that you should be aware of. I just did a free training on that. Unfortunately, there's a lot of like nefarious players in the treatment space that it's purely profit driven and, and, and uh, you know, downright criminal in some regards. Right. Get right. them in, get them out, change the bed and get Worse the next than that. Right. Like, let's get them. Let's get them high. Like, let's just give them a place to get high and charge the insurance companies, you know, like, and we're just going to charge $1,200 for urine screens, like really, really, really bad stuff. The other side of it is, let's say that you have an ethical and effective treatment facility that still doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be effective and ethical or effective for your loved one. Right. It might not be the best place for your loved one to go based on their specific needs. And often, right, if you do get to that, yes- now you're scrambling. You're just like, what, what, you know, like, yeah. let's just get them anywhere. Let's just get them somewhere as right. if treatment is standardized across the board. It's not. Right. You want to have it as tailored ahead of time as possible. And that's just not something that's, it's not something that you're going to be able to do without a family being involved right. ahead of time. It's just not. Right. Because a treatment facility ethically can take the phone call from you and get all of their assessment questions answered and say, oh, yeah, this person's yeah, a yeah, yeah. treatment facility. Yeah. Meanwhile, they, they really might not be. In, in this, like, from an ethical standpoint, it's, a, it's wholly appropriate that they come here. But if you just knew, like if you had a selection of five different places and you happen to know, like, who's the director here? What's the philosophy? What are the counselors like? Like, what, what is their programming? And then go, well, 45-year-old male with three children, alcohol and opiate addiction in the last three years is going to be more appropriate for that facility versus 22-year-old female who identifies as lesbian, who has sexual trauma and is addicted to Adderall. Mm. You say, boy, this is a really great treatment facility, but it's better for the 45-year-old guy and she should go to this one that's wholly appropriate for her demographics and and some of the issues that she's experienced in her life, right? You want to get it as close to highest and best level of care as you can, you know? 
because you want this kick of the can to be the kick of the can. As, right. You know, one of my mentors, Bob Marier, says all, this, all the time that the reason why people say treatment doesn't work is because it just it wasn't tailored to the individual from the start. I think for me, Lindsay threw a dart at um, a board as far as treatment was for me. And I happened to, you know, score 100 and find mm-hmm. a great facility that was perfect for me and taught me everything. And it was, I was one and done, but I was in there with some people, um, that it was their sixth treatment center, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. I just said to myself, I, I can't do that. I don't want to, I don't want to do it. Was it their sixth time there? No, it's a different, different facility. Yeah. yeah, yeah there yeah. was re there was retreads of course, but you know, there are people that have just been to Arizona, have been to Florida, California, Michigan. And, and it's just like, Oh my God, is this what I have to go through? Yeah. I mean, I don't have anything scientifically to back this up. Right. But it does seem as though when what I'm saying applies to people that are kind of in that mild to moderate zone. So if you have somebody that's been banged up in their life and now they just got a DWI and they land in treatment somewhere, it's like, well, that treatment might not be the appropriate place to kind of get through to that particular individual based on his circumstances and all the things that have happened in his life up to now, right? If you had that tailored, maybe that could have been the kick at the can. That, that was it, you know? But in a severe, like knowing your story and how bad it was, but the other key element to your story, I think, is that your treatment wasn't four weeks. Right. No, it, it was, was not. It was seven. Yeah, seven. So seven or eight. Seven, seven or eight. Seven or eight is a lot better than the standard 28 days. Yeah. Seven, right. eight weeks, right? And, and so the longer treatment happens, that, that kind of, you know, and then additionally, having support at home, having people that are informed, let's not forget that Lindsay was already in Al-Anon. Yeah. There's a lot of these elements that you had in play that make it so that I'm one and done. You're welcome. Well, and yeah, and, <laughs> and, and, and I was in the hospital. So I was four right. weeks sober from that. Then I was in a rehab facility to walk mm-hmm. again. And that was two weeks. So, I mean, you're right. I had, I had it out of my system for a while, but that brings up a good point that Lindsay, the way I was treated when I got mm. back, we always talk about, we never really had the discussion, but Lindsay let me go on my journey of recovery because she had to go on her own journey and mm-hmm. let me do it and not have to look over my shoulder every time. Is that something along with, with why intervention it's when people get back, right? The work, sure. the work continues. Sure. And now it's like, this is, this is when recovery begins. And so what you, as soon as this person gets into treatment, there's going to be like this, this period of relief. And I try to preemptively talk about what's going to happen when this person goes in, but inevitably the family always seems to just like ghost me for a week or two. They just can't. <laughs> it's, like, it's just like, oh, we're not going to talk to this guy. Like, thank God that's all. And they're just riding the relief wave. And it's like, but assuming that we've established the relationship really solid, you know, they're going to, okay, like we know that he's coming home. And like you mentioned, like we're starting to feel that squirminess. Yeah. The you know, anxiety. Like starting to recognize it. And it's like, okay. And now it's about starting your recovery journey so that, you can do your own thing. Obviously, I mean, it's, it's going to be better even if you start before they go anywhere. Right. right. Like that you already have this kind of laid down, like the foundation is great. But if you do do it simultaneously, what you're going to find is that by modeling recovery, by being even just one step ahead of them, you are able to kind of face the same challenges that they're going to complain that they have to face. So if you are able to move through your own resistance to going to meetings, your own resistance to reaching out, making phone calls, your own resistance to, you know, whatever you might want to do, whether it's, you know, dietary changes or like exercise or meditation or, you know, um, whatever sort of element yoga, things that you might add to your life. Once it's recommended to them and it's like, well, I don't want to do it. It's like, well, we're all doing it. We're, we're already all doing it. And it, in that kind of way, can become a family experience. Yeah. And, you know, I just hope that that's the sort of thing that begins to, I don't know, kind of get into the understanding of people everywhere. You know, that the initial focus, it moves from like this, this addicted person needs to get help to the family saying, we need to get help. And if it can become family-centered, family-focused, 
if the family can say, we're responsible for identifying this, mm. right? And, and saying that like, okay, like we've used the fire analogy before, like I'm recognizing that the house is on fire. He's trapped inside. Right. So he doesn't necessarily know that his house is on fire. It's my job to call for help. That's my responsibility in this. Of course, it's his responsibility to take care of his house and make sure that his house is going to be well kept so that it doesn't get on fire all the time. Yeah. Right. Like we want that to change. But right now the house is on fire and someone needs to call for help. And I can't rely on him to do it because he's inside and he thinks everything's fine. Yeah. It's so true. It's it's just the perfect analogy. And Thank you. you. Make it, oh, that was my, was that, were you saying that mine was? No. Oh, his, you uh, make <laughs> it sound so simple. Maybe that's not the right thing to say, but it is a simple concept. Right. Right. But it is so hard to do because loved ones have such a raw emotional attachment to whoever it is, whether it's a, a son, a daughter, a mother, a father, whatever, that they can't get out of their own way most Mm -hmm. of the time. Mm -hmm. And with guidance from you, I just see endless possibilities for so many individuals. If you just come at things from a different perspective, I try to tell people all the time, you know, when they're just like, I'm just so angry. I'm just, just angry over it. And right. I was there too. So I don't Mm -hmm. discount their feelings, but it takes so much of this family member to step back and look outside of themselves. They need help and I need to help get them there. And an intervention is just an incredible way to do it. Yeah. But we, you know, we do agree that we all love this person with substance abuse. Mm -hmm. But there ha- it must be tough to get people on the same page a lot, right? Because a lot yeah. of people have different beliefs and sure. structure. I mean, look, we can't even get people to wear f- masks for two weeks. Sorry, I'll mm. beep that out. But like, you know, so, <laughs> so that must be tough to get people on the same page as a family. And that must be hard work for yeah. you right, right in the beginning. That is the, that is the work. Like the pre-intervention is, is pretty much, it is all of the work. And then like, there's, there's this like wave of like, you know, anticipation and like, you know, semi-anxiety going into this conversation. It's like, all right, well, they're on their way over. And and it's like, everybody's like prepared. And then there's butterflies in the stomach and you see people shaking their hands, just like, oh my God, I'm so nervous. You know, (laughs) just like pregame, just like before we're going to take the field. If ever you've seen any kind of like, everybody is well coached, they're prepared. As soon as the thing goes, everybody sits down and it's like, boom, game time. We know what we're doing. And it's everybody rises to the level of preparation, right? Like it's, we're right here. And the addiction just doesn't stand a chance in front of this loving, caring family that's well-prepared and isn't going down the old rabbit holes. We're just not doing that today. And we're letting you know that it's not going to, we're not going to do it anymore in the future. Right. So if you say no today, you're well within your rights. And this is one of the other conceptions of like, like we're forcing, we're dragging people out, kicking and screaming. We're not doing that. Think of it like you have someone lost in the woods, right? And you go and you find them and you bring them to the bridge, to the other side. And you say, we're going across. It's better over there. Well, we're saying we don't want to have to come back over here anymore. This is where the bridge is. We got you to the base. Now we know you know where it is. Would you like to walk across with us? Because it's better over there. You can stay here, but we're going over there. (laughs) So good. Yeah. Yeah, here's Here's another analogy that I thought of when you were telling the story about coming from love. It's almost like the Care Bear Stare. Do you remember the Care Bear Stare? Were they... (laughs) Where they all stood in line and they shine their chests and they yeah. could do, they could beat anybody. It's, it's going to fall. another good analogy? It is nowhere near the bridge. It was better than my Care Bear Chris, stare, I'm but I just said to say. I have so much comfort in just like listening to you. You bring me so much hope. Just hope. And God, I could just sit here and like keep talking. I really wish <laughs> I did this eight years ago. <laughs> yeah, but, but listen. You did. You did your version of it. You just, but see, the thing is, is that in often, and this is what I'd like to change with why intervention. It's like, really, like, I haven't really used this kind of publicly, but like, it is kind of what I am, right? It's like, I'm like an intervention advocate, you know, like I'm, yeah. I'm about intervention. It's like, I can't do all the interventions. I, you know what I mean? Like, it's not about like me doing interventions for everyone. It's about this as a concept. 
and sharing it as a message like to, to expand hope, but not just hope, but leaf, yeah. making it simple, like really like it's a conversation and your addicted loved one is going to fold. The addiction is going to fold in the face of it. I've seen it over and over and over yeah. again. And the thing for me was I was the same skeptic as everybody else. Right. I like I never watched the TV show. I was somebody that was in active addiction who would, of course, said, oh, an intervention wouldn't work for me, you know. <laughs> and then after I got trained in it and after I started doing it, that's when it was like, oh, my God, my mother did this. <laughs> my mother was the missing piece of the puzzle there. If it hadn't been for her, I don't go to a meeting that day. There's no question about it. It's not like I'm just going to wander my way into a meeting on my own that day if it isn't for my mom asking me and getting me to agree. Right. Right. It's such a key element and it's in everyone's story. So many people that are in recovery. And now that we're having this conversation, look for it. And anybody listening that's in recovery, listen for it. Even think about your own stories. Yeah. Think about what was actually happening in the 24 hours preceding you getting help. And you will find the circumstances, the people, the things that happened, that if it hadn't been, if one of those elements is missing, you don't get sober that day. Right. And none of us are so egotistical that we can say <laughs> that we'd still be alive the next time we got drunk or high. Yeah. All yeah, of us having right. lived it know that if we didn't get sober that day, there's no guarantee that we're alive today. Yeah. I think it's actually scientifically proven that I was, I was about dead. 12 hours from dying. So I wouldn't have made it the next day. Um, it does take the family member to make the phone call to you. How do they get in touch with you? Whyintervention.com. Whyintervention.com. And, you know, avail yourself of the free resources. Also, like if you just listen to the podcast, much like this podcast, my hope is that the belief is going to start coming to fruition for you, that you're going to really start to um, say like, wow, this is something that could actually work. And one of the things you said before, Lindsay, it's like, well, what's the alternative? You say like, well, it's simple. I, maybe I shouldn't say simple. It's like, no, no, it's, it's simple conceptually. But what it's going to take to do it just means that you're going to have to stop doing what you've been doing. And if you really examine what you've been doing, it's like, well, what are the results that you've been getting? And that's the whole spinning our wheels and feel. And then the more that you do that over and over again, the more helpless it feels, the more you start to buy into the belief that there's nothing you can do, because look at how much I've tried to do. But without any guidance, you're not going to know what to do. Right. That doesn't make any, you know, nobody huge. is an expert on this, like out the gate. Right. Except unless you happen to have the experience of my mom or right. someone like that. But even people in recovery don't necessarily have a lot of that kind of skill set where they're able to kind of have the conversation. There's a lot of nuanced things that my mom did that we can talk about some other time. But, you know, like that she kind of, like I said, she was kind of setting me up. She was stringing me along. It was like, it was just an easy, easy thing to get me to commit to. So um, if anybody is listening that's interested, it's whyintervention.com. Avail yourself of the free resources, you know, listen to the podcast, download the free stuff. And um, I just want to be helpful. Oh, you're incredible. I, I have loved every second of this conversation. I just it's like the, the Care Bear, even the Care Bear stare. <laughs> no, we might, edit, <laughs> we might edit the Care Bear stare out. Anybody that like really knows the Care Bear, they're going to get it. Yeah, they're going to get they're it. They're going to get it 100%. And you're not wrong. You're not wrong there. They're going to get it. You know, it's cool. At the end of the show, we always like to say to the, to the person in recovery and you, you are in recovery. Um, what, what can you say to the addict out there? But I think today, I think it would be fair for us to say, what, what do we say? What would you say to the family member? Who's like hanging on to that last string of hope. Mm -hmm. That there is something that you can do to help. There is something that you can do to help you, that you do not have to wait for your loved one to hit bottom, that they don't have to want it right now. They don't have to be ready for anything. They can do all of that on the other side of treatment. That's when the wanting it makes sense. That's when being ready makes sense. People hit bottoms in hindsight. Yeah. So you can help. You just need some guidance. You need a strategy on how to deal with this. But there are solutions for this, and it's context-based. Speak to someone like me or an interventionist, and know that if you do just kind of like speak to anybody, even professionals, unfortunately, they're not really that informed about intervention either. Right. So just like me, like I said, I was a skeptic. If you would have called me six years ago, I would have probably said the same thing. Well, you know, there's not really much that you can do to help as if that's helpful. Yeah. You know, and that's unfortunate. 
but hopefully that's why intervention exists, you know, to, to, to shine a light on that and that there is something that you can do. And, you know, it's just about getting them to say yes. And this is something that an intervention does. I hope people open their eyes to this and really take a deep look into it because a, a lot of times I think when people think interventions, they think about baseball bats and bringing Molotov cocktails and getting ready for a big fight. But what you mm. really are expressing is like, bring, bring the love and just concentrate yeah. on that. Yeah. And I think that another thing in mentioning that it's like the fear, the fear, the discomfort, the like having to face this in a different way. And so part of the intervention process and the pre-intervention is going to be coming to terms with all of that also. This is your own facing so that you're going to get centered and grounded in what you're doing. And you're going to know very clearly what's going on here. And you're going to have a strategy moving forward. And when you have that kind of approach and everybody is together and, and on the same page and has the same game plan, the addiction just, it folds. Chris, it's incredible what you do. Thank you so much for joining us today. I just have loved every second of this. That was great. Chris Doyle, Why Intervention. Thank you so much. We appreciate Thank it. Guys. Thank you. This was great. I'll be Rest so tightly on your soul Cause you were Won't let you go And every breath you try to breathe alone I'll be beside you so you know